You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here together this morning. Uh, If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church and uh, very excited about our time together uh, this morning because, hey, Christmas time is here. Right? And that's a, that's a great thing. I love this time of year. But it's not all happiness and cheer, is it? How's that for a downer? Is it like right here, it's just kids singing and then let's talk about how this time of year, not always happiness and cheer. But, but it's not, is it? Like, uh, you know, this time of year plus tied to the end of the year, uh, for many, this is a very lonely uh, this is a, a very a sad time of year, perhaps a time that just really highlights maybe more than other normal times of the year that, uh, you know, hopes have gone un- unmet or uh, deferred or you have, uh, um, you know, ex- feeling extra lonely or feeling the loss of somebody, a relationship or loss of a loved one. And, and you just, I mean, it can be a really hard time of year for many people, um, and so this morning, we're going to start a new uh, three-week series that we're calling A Thrill of Hope. And we're using this line stolen from the song that we sang just a minute ago. And, man, Katie, just, I could listen to her sing all day. But um, the, uh, that line, A Thrill of Hope, the full line is, A Thrill of Hope, A Weary World Rejoices. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to start a series. We're going to start a series. We start. Uh, it's been three weeks talking about the hope that is truly found in this uh, Christmas season. It's really found in Christmas and what we are celebrating. And when I say hope, I don't mean wishful thinking, which is how we normally use the word hope. I'm actually using the biblical definition of hope, which I have for you up here. Hope biblically is life-shaping certainty about things unseen. When the Bible speaks of our hope, it's meaning this. It doesn't mean something that we wish will happen, but we're not sure if it will happen. No, in scripture, the word hope means this, life-shaping certainty about things unseen. And it's this certainty that you have that's tied to the character and promises of God. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to reflect on the confident, life-shaping hope that can make a weary world and weary people rejoice. We're going to look at the hope that we have as a result of God's character, which is put on display through a few stories that we don't often associate with the Christmas story, but we should. And I say we should because uh, Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples, spent three years with Jesus. When he sat down to write his account of Jesus' life, he tied the stories that we're going to look at in this series, he tied them directly to Jesus and his coming, to his birth. But um, we don't usually tie them to it. Primarily, or one of the reasons I should say, is because uh, they're weird stories. Uh, They're sin-filled, messed up, broken, and at times super uh, creepy and upsetting uh, stories. 
There are like R-rated stories in the Bible. Uh, you should read your Bible. There's a lot of R-rated stories in the Bible. I don't know if you know that. But we're going we're gonna to look at three of them in this series, and, and it should be really interesting. So maybe you're going to lean in a little bit because it's like, oh, man, what, what, what are we looking at? But let me, uh, let me warn you. Um, Matthew ties these stories to Jesus. We're going to see the hope that we have because of uh, what he's doing here with these stories. But he, he, uh, the way he introduces these stories or the way he alludes to these stories, it, it's literally the most boring way possible. Okay, Because what, Jesus, what, what Matthew does when he sits down and writes his account of Jesus' life, he begins with a genealogy. And I, I don't know how many of y'all uh, read genealogies on your free time. It's, uh, they're probably not the best hook, like of all of the material that Matthew could use from Jesus' life to really get someone's attention right at the beginning when he's writing. He, he starts with the genealogy thinking, I mean, why in the world would he do that? Well, let me tell you, the reason that Matthew starts with the genealogy is because he, who was a Jew, was writing to his people, Jewish people, and for the uh, specific purpose of telling them that the Messiah had come. He wanted them to know that Jesus was the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. But he knew, Matthew knew, that the first question any normal Jew would ask if someone was saying, hey, the Messiah had come, is, well, was he related to King David? Because the Jews, they understood that God had promised to David that he would, God would ensure that there was always someone from his line on the throne, on the Davidic throne. And so the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one or the anointed king, if he was going to come, he would come from the line of David. And so because Matthew knew, knew that if he was going to make the case that the Messiah had come to his Jewish brothers and sisters, to his people, he knew the first question they would ask was, was he related to King David? And so he begins with a genealogy in order to answer their very first question, their burning question to show, yes, Jesus was indeed related to King David. But as Matthew begins to answer that question, he throws in some extra commentary. He adds a little extra detail because Matthew was not just concerned of uh, letting people know that Jesus was related to King David. And he didn't just want people to know that the Messiah had come. He also wanted, right from the start, to make sure that people knew why the Messiah had come. And so Matthew, he doesn't just go through the father of, father of, father of, father of King David, father of, so, no, he, he, he ad-libs, or he adds details, he does some, adds some color commentary. And as he does, he draws specific attention to some messed up people some uh, messed up stories, some broken people. And you think, Matthew, why, why would you do that? Like, why would you go out of your way to associate Jesus with people that we probably wouldn't want to be associated with? Much less Jesus, if you're trying to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah, why would, why would you go out of your way to show that Jesus is associated with these people? And, and really, I think if we had a chance to ask Matthew that question, he would tell us, well, the reason why is because, one, um, that's... They're part of the story. I didn't want to leave them out. But two, and really maybe more importantly, it's because they all illustrate the point of the story. They illustrate the point of the story. And because, like I said, Matthew didn't want, in the, in the announcement that the Messiah had come, for the reason why the Messiah comes, he didn't want that to get lost. He draws some attention to these people, these sin-filled 
messed up people. People that could win awards for their sin. <laughs> and I'm going to explain what I mean by that as we jump in. So let's, let's dive in. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here's how Matthew begins the account of Jesus' life and announces or describes the birth of Jesus or how Jesus came about to be born, I should say. Um, here it is. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's so important they understood. Okay, son of David, he was related to David, son related to Abraham, but then he begins. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And that's the first time that the pattern of, you know, the father of uh, breaks. And he adds this color commentary. And people that he was writing to, his Jewish audience, who were very familiar with the Old Testament, they would have paused at that point. Now, we may be not as familiar with the Old Testament, but they just kind of breeze by this statement. But they would have paused because this is, a, this is interesting. Because, see, Judah had a lot of brothers. I don't know if you know this, but Judah had 11 brothers. They, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, have you heard? they were founded on these 12 brothers. And so there's 12 brothers and yet, God said, okay, Judah, out of the 12, you're the one that's going to be in the line of, of Jesus. And people would have said, okay, well, that's interesting because, you see, Judah had a really famous brother. He had a brother that was really revered. Many of y'all, perhaps even if you aren't, didn't grow up in church or aren't familiar with the Bible, you know who this brother is. It's Joseph, right? You know Joseph? You ever seen the play, uh, 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 The Coat of Many Colors? Seen that one? Um, that's that guy. He's Joseph. He, he's, he's really famous. A lot of people know his story, or at least parts of his story. But not many people know Judah's story, or really anything about Judah. But if you know Joseph's story, and again, Matthew's audience, original audience, they knew, they knew Joseph's story. And they, what they knew about Joseph was that he was this incredible man of integrity. And that he uh, suffered a lot, and he was persecuted, and yet he remained faithful to God, and he honored God. And in the end of Joseph's story, this is really wild, but he actually is like a savior. He saves many, many people. Actually, we're told he saves. God used him to save many people. Like, he's this incredible display of the character of Jesus, perhaps better displaying the character of Jesus than any other person in the entire Old Testament. And see, Matthew's original audience, they knew that, and yet, here's Matthew telling him, and really kind of going out of their way to highlight the fact that the Messiah didn't come from Joseph. He, didn't, he came from Judah. And that didn't make sense to them, and it shouldn't make sense to you. It won't make sense to you as you hear Judah's story as we go on this morning. Because um, God would have, should have picked Joseph. Like, we would have picked Joseph if you could hold them up and say, okay, the Messiah should come through one of these guys. Everyone would say, ah, yeah, Joseph. Joseph would be the one that makes sense. And yet, God chose Judah. And Matthew wants us to know that because uh, it illustrates the point of the story. Let me explain what I mean by looking at the story. If you want to turn to uh, Genesis chapter 7, if you, uh, 37, if you have access to a Bible, you can go there. Uh, we're going to kind of cover a lot of ground this morning, but uh, it's fascinating. And we just follow the story of Judah. And um, 
Let me uh, just kind of begin it this way. We're going to jump in at verse 17, give you a little context. And some of y'all will be familiar with this. But Judah and his brothers, they hated their brother Joseph because Joseph was their father Jacob's favorite. And he, that's where he got that ornate coat, right? And, and uh, he was just the one that got all, you know, got all the special stuff. And, and uh, the, so they were jealous. They hated their brother Joseph. And finally, one day, their animosity, their jealousy just kind of boils over. And uh, they're out in a field, and they see Joseph coming and approaching them. And here's what we read uh, in Genesis 37, verse 17. Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. And you thought your family was dysfunctional, right? I mean, that's, that's a little messed up. Now, thankfully... One of the brothers, a guy named Reuben, he, he decides to, he like talks the other brothers out of killing Joseph right away. And he's, he actually kind of gets like a little compromise and where instead of killing Joseph right away, they would just strip him of his robe and throw him into a well. Yeah, an empty well or a cistern, but uh, so that he can't get out. But that's like, okay, we bought some time. Uh, and then Joseph, lying, uh, lying in this well, uh, his brothers haven't just done it. The very next thing we read in that passage is that they uh, sit, sit down to eat. And in my notes I write, um, what? Right? Because here's what verse 25 says. As they sat down to eat their meal, like brothers sh- screaming in the distance, and they're like, oh, this food's really good. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. And their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and, there were, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And it's the next sentence is where we're introduced to Ju- Judah. Judah, who's in the genealogy of Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. Here's his line. Judah said to his brothers, Hey, what would we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood. Like, hey, I'm sitting here enjoying this meal while we hear our brothers scream in the distance. And I'm just thinking, if we kill him, what do we gain from that? We can't profit off his death. We're just going to have to cover it up. So he says this. Um, Judah said to his brothers, uh, or sorry, he says, Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, and here's a little mercy for you. Uh, he is our brother. Our own flesh and blood. Can you feel the love? It's like, you know, um, let's just sell him. Let's sell our brother because then we can profit off his pain. And we don't have to cover up his blood. We can just get rid of him. So let's just sell him. And his brothers, they think that's a great idea. And so that's what they do. And they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. They, the Ishmaelites take them to, him down to Egypt. And Judah and his brothers, they take that coat that they ripped off of him. They dip it in blood. And they go to their home. And they break their father's heart. And they break Joseph's mother's heart. And they lie. And they tell him that animals had killed Joseph. And then they live with that lie for about 20 years. 20 years, they cover up, they hid what they did. Now, if you're reading in Genesis, and I really encourage you to read this whole story, it's fantastic. But if you're reading in Genesis and you finish chapter 37, you want to know what happens to Joseph. And you expect that that's where the next chapter is going to go, chapter 38. But instead of picking up with Joseph and what happens to him in Egypt, we get this one chapter that's all about Judah. 
And what we find in Genesis chapter 38 is that once Judah has convinced his brothers to sell Joseph off to, you know, into slavery, he just moves on with his life. He leaves home, he goes somewhere, he gets married, he has three sons, his sons grow up, and his first son, a son named Ur, gets married to a woman named Tamar. But then Ur dies. And so uh, Judah, and I'm skipping over stuff here, you can read this for yourself, but for sake of time, I'm going to have to paraphrase. But uh, Judah tells his other son, his second son, Onan, that he needs to uh, take in Tamar, marry her, and have kids with her, which, you know, is super weird for us to, uh, today. But uh, at that time, that was actually the, the cultural appropriate thing to do um, because uh, being a widow without a son to care for you uh, puts you in an incredible, vulnerable state. So this is the way that they would take, uh, take in widows and make sure that they were cared for and be able to provide her a son. And so as was customary, Judah uh, has Onan, his second son, Mary Tamar. But then Onan dies. And how he dies and why he dies uh, is a wild part of the story that I'm going to let you read for yourself. And if you read it for yourself, you'll know why I'm letting you read it for yourself. So then, after Onan dies... Jo Judah has a decision to make. See, he has a decision to make because he has one more son, son named Shelah. And he has a responsibility to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And he should have Shelah marry Tamar to provide for her a son. But uh, every time Tamar marries one of his sons, that son ends up dying. To no fault of Tamar, but that's just what happens. And so Judah's thinking, I don't know if I want to give Tamar to Shelah. And so he doesn't. Instead, he says this to Tamar, chapter, uh, chapter 38, verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. So he sends Tamar away back to her home, her father's house. And the scripture makes it very clear, if you read it, that uh, Judah had no plans to actually fulfill his promise to her that he just didn't want to break it to her, that I'm never going to give you my son. And so you're going to be a widow without hope of having a son of your own, without having anyone to provide for you. When your father dies, you're, you're abandoned. It's going to put her in this incredible, vulnerable, incredibly desperate situation. But he just promises this to her in faith, and he breaks the promise. And as the passage goes on, years go by. Time goes by. Years go by. Uh, Judah's uh, wife dies. He mourns. More time goes by. All the while, Tamar has no one to provide for her. She's incredibly vulnerable, uh, and she is desperate. And so she comes up with a plan, and she kind of takes things in her own hands, and things get creepy, but she's desperate. See, what she decides to do is that uh, she decides she's going to dress like a temple prostitute and place a veil over her face, and then she's going to go to a place that she knows Judah will be. And in verse 15 of Genesis 38, we read, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And Tamar says, oh, Okay, what will you give me? And Judah says, How about a young goat? 
And I guess that's the going rate for that at that time. So, um, can, in church, can you make jokes about father-in-laws sleeping with daughter-in-laws and prostitution? But I just did. Um, so, anyways, um, so he says, yeah, okay, I'll give you a young goat. But I didn't, he didn't have a young goat on him. And so she says, well, how about give me something as a pledge? Um, I'll give me your seal, which was basically his form of identification, and your staff. And he says, okay. And so he gives her his seal and his ID. And then his you know, seal was serving as his ID and the, and the rod. And then he um, sleeps with his daughter-in-law. Judah, uh, who's in the genealogy of Jesus, sleeps with his daughter-in-law because he thought she was a prostitute. He didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. It doesn't really make it better, does it? And to complicate matters, she gets pregnant. Now, Judah doesn't know that she gets pregnant, right? In fact, Judah doesn't see her again after this. He uh, sends a servant to go try to pay the prostitute that he had hired with the uh, young goat, but the the servant can't find her anywhere. And so Judah finally just says, hey, just let her just keep my stuff. That's fine. Let's not keep trying to find her and track her down because people are going to start laughing at us that I can't find the prostitute I hired. So he he just lets it be. Now, friends, For a little contrast here, this is Genesis chapter 38. One chapter over, Genesis 39, is a famous story of Joseph. You remember him? Who Judah sold into slavery? Where Joseph is actually, uh, we get a a snapshot where he's like, where he's actually being a servant. Where she's a slave to the guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. This is side by side in the Bible, chapter 38, chapter 39 of Genesis. And Joseph, instead of giving in to sexual temptation, flees it. And you have this picture of this guy of incredible integrity and incredible holiness. And yet he, he gets punished for doing the right thing. And like this guy is just this amazing man of character. And you see these guys contrasted right next to each other and you scratch your head. Because why in the world did God pick Judah instead of Joseph to be in the line of Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. See, Matthew, he knows that's the point of the story. But to understand the point, you've got to hear the rest of the Judah story. And it gets worse. Because after having sex with his daughter-in-law, and she getting pregnant, and he not paying her what they agreed, and she keeps his stuff. Uh, the next thing we read in verse 24 of chapter 38 is this. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah responds with the most hypocritically uh, self-righteous way you can imagine. Here's what he says. Bring her out and have her burned to death. Like, what? Right? Bring her out and have her burned to death. Here's Judah. He, he's going to climb up on his pedestal and say, How dare this woman, my daughter-in-law, bring shame on our family? 
How dare her do such a disgraceful thing? We, she must be judged. She must be condemned. She must be burnt alive. Like, oh my goodness. This coming from the man, the guy who sold his brother into slavery. This coming from the guy who broke his father's heart, Joseph's mother's heart, telling them a lie and keeping it for 20 years. This coming from the guy who broke his promise to his daughter-in-law when he said, I will give you to my third son and then never did and never intended to do and put her in the desperate situation she was in. This guy says, burn her alive. And he's in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, uh, they go to get Tamar to burn her. But Tamar has something of Judas, doesn't she? Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to the father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And I don't really know how this played out, right? And we don't have all the details, but I guess like they're dragging her and she says, hey, I got one message to Judah, send this to him. And, and so a messenger shows up and he's holding Judah's seal and his staff. And he says, hey, I don't know, like we're taking Tamar out to burn her, like you said, but um, uh, we, uh, she seems to think that you might know who these things belong to. And I don't know what Judah said at that exact moment, but my guess is that he said something like this. Um, oh, you know, you know what? Uh, you know, no, let, that whole fire thing, let's, you know, not today. That's, let's, let's call that whole thing off. That was a terrible idea. And then in Scripture, we read that this is what he says. That she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shayla. That she is more righteous than I, because I wouldn't take care of her. And so uh, Tamar is not killed. And the passage goes on, and uh, she ends up giving birth. And she gives birth to twins, two boys. And one's name is Perez. And Perez is also in the genealogy of Jesus, along with his mother, Tamar. Back to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 or two through three. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. Now why in the world did Matthew not skip over that? I mean, that's the kind of messes the whole thing up, right? I mean, if his point in writing this genealogy is to show people, like, yeah, Jesus is the promised Messiah, and like try to get them to think well of Jesus, why do you drag this up? I mean, he could have just stayed with the, at least just stayed with the fathers and added no commentary, father of, father of, father of. But no, he, he adds, and brothers of Ju- Judah and his brothers, and then he puts Tamar in there, mentions her by name. Why in the world would he do that? Why drag all this up? Why do we want him, why, do we, he, why does he want us thinking about, like, okay, so the press is like this illegitimate child of a father-in-law and a daughter. I mean, it's just, come, come on. You don't do that unless this whole thing points to the point of the story. It illustrates the whole point of the story, the story of why Jesus came. And it does. It points to that story. And I will tell you how 
in a second because we're not done with Judah's story yet. So the next thing that happens, after all this, Judah's story is not done. uh, We read later in Genesis that this famine strikes about 20 years after he sold his brother into slavery. A famine strikes, and there's no grain anywhere. And so Jacob, the father of all these brothers, right, he calls his brothers, remaining brothers together, and he says, y'all need to go to Egypt and get grain for our family. And so they do. They go to Egypt, and who do they find there? The person that is over the distribution of all the grain. Joseph. Joseph, the brother that they sold into slavery. He's now the prime minister of Egypt. And it's an incredible story. If you're not familiar with it, you should read it. You should read your Bible. So there's amazing stuff in there. But um, it's wild. They stand before Joseph, and, the, and they can't believe that, that uh, or no, I'm sorry, they stand before Joseph, but they don't recognize that it's Joseph. Now, Joseph recognizes his 11 Hebrew brothers, and so he can't believe this, but he, he doesn't want to reveal who he is to them yet. And so he, uh, he messes with them. He tests them. He tries to see if they've changed at all. And so it's a long, intricate story where he sends them back, and they come, he, and then they come back to him. He sends them back again. There's this whole exchange. It's a long kind of thing, but it's really fascinating. But it all culminates in this point where eventually they come back to Egypt again. And Joseph prepares a dinner for them. And then he clears the room where it's just him and his brothers. And then one of the most dramatic scenes in all of literature, and I'm not exaggerating there, Joseph reveals to his brothers who he is. And at that moment, Judah realizes that he's face to face with the brother he sold into slavery who now has the power over life and death. And I am certain that Judah at that moment was thinking, and what would I do if I was Joseph? How quick would I say, burn them alive? But Joseph doesn't say that. Genesis chapter 45, it's fascinating. He says to his brothers, hey, I forgive you. I want you all to know I forgive you. And in addition, not only do I forgive you, but I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. You can have as much grain as you want. In fact, I want you to come and live in Egypt. I'm going to give you land. Let's all be together. I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to hold a grudge against you. I'm going to extend grace to you because here's what I understand, Joseph says, is that, that what happened to me, what you did to me, and all that took place, it was God used to save the lives of many, to save your lives and our lives, your family's lives, and the lives of the Egyptians and the Pharaoh, that God was behind all this. And so it's okay. I'm not going to judge you or condemn you. I'm not going to kill you. I forgive you. See, Joseph was amazing. And you hold him up, and you hold Judah up, and you think, why in the world did God not have Jesus come through the line of Joseph? I mean, that's what would make sense, right? Friends, 
the reason why God picked Joseph, I mean, picked Judah, is because uh, on that day when Judah was face to face with his brother, jo- Judah was an example of you, and he was an example of me. See, because Judah on that day was not given what he deserved. He was given something far better than what he deserved. See, Judah was a picture of a person who deserved one thing, but received grace instead. And that's the point of the story. The point of Judah's story and the point of the Christmas story is this, that God's love and acceptance does not depend on what we do for him, but on what he has done for us. Listen, almost all world religions believe that God's acceptance and willingness to hear your prayers and bless your life and take care of your health or your kids or your job, that all of them teach that in order for you to have any confidence that God's going to do any of that for you, you first have to do much for him. You have to earn it. You have to do the right things and not do the wrong things, or at least, at least you have to promise to him that you'll never do that again, or I'm going to stop doing that, or I'm going to start doing that, and then maybe you can have fragile, perhaps unconfident, but maybe, maybe hope that God will accept you and love you and bless you. And listen, to some extent, every single one of us believes that. If you sin, you do something wrong, you hurt somebody, and you don't immediately run to God at that moment, but instead, you distance yourself from God. You hide or you try to beat yourself up or you try to do some good stuff to get back into God's good graces, then that shows that you believe that God accepts you and he loves you based on what you do for him. And some of you, friends, you have a secret. Like Judah had a secret. And you don't want everyone, anyone to know this secret, but you know God knows this secret. And because of your thing that you've done or you are doing right now, you feel like God could never love you or never accept you. And you will never come to him because you think there's no hope that God would ever accept me based on this thing. And some of you carry such deep shame. Something that you did or that was done to you and it makes you feel like you will never measure up and that you can never be enough, and that you're not lovable or you're unworthy of love. And you think, okay, there's no way in light of this that God would ever love me or accept me. Friends, if you feel that way, I've got good news for you. It's Christmas. And friends, Christmas declares, Christmas declares that God does not love you or accept you based on what you do or haven't done, but based on what he has done. See, contrary to the most world, what most world religions teach and what we naturally believe, God's love and acceptance is dependent on him, not on us. And you see, that's what Matthew wanted us to know from the very beginning of his account of of Jesus' life. 
That's why he drew our attention to Judah and Tamar and the first three verses of his genealogy. For hear this, if God's love, and this is important, please tune in here. If God's love and acceptance is based on what we do for him, God picks Joseph over Judah every time. If, if, if God's love and acceptance is based on what we do for him, God picks Joseph over Judah. But that's the point. He didn't pick Joseph. He picked Judah because God's love and acceptance is not based on what we do for him, but what he has done for us. And that should fill all of us with great hope, great life-shaping certainty, because it means that God does not treat us as we deserve because he's full of grace. God's grace demonstrated in the inclusion of Judah and in the gift of Jesus declares to us the great hope that God relates to you based on what he has done for you, not on what you do for him. And so you do not have to fear that you'll never be at peace with God because of what you have or have not done. Isn't that amazing? Because that's the hope of Christmas. That God came into the world to extend grace to people who didn't deserve it. And you receive his grace just like Judah did about 3,500 years ago or so when Judah was extended grace by Joseph and he decided, I'm going to accept exactly what I don't deserve. See, that's how relationships of grace and forgiveness always begin. It's a choice to receive what you don't deserve. And when you do, you begin to know the hope, the life-shaping, confident hope that God accepts you and loves you no matter what. Now, there's one more thing that is really amazing in, in this whole story that I don't want you to miss. See, something else that can fill us with great hope, and that's this. The life of Judah also communicates that our sin and our past and our failures cannot impede God's perfect plan. For you see, God's plan to bring the Messiah uh, through Judah was not deterred by the unfaithfulness of Judah. You see that? That Judah's sin, his broken life, it couldn't upset God's plan. And do you know why? It's because not only is God's grace that great, but our God is that great. He's so wise, and he's so powerful, and he's so faithful that our mess-ups, our mistakes, our sins can't thwart his perfect plan. That even though, even through Judah's failure and sin, God's plan prevailed, and the Messiah was born. Which means if this year was terrible for you, and everything that you wanted to have happen didn't happen, and everything you wished didn't happen happened, You messed up, and you hurt others, and relationships were broken, or other people messed up and hurt you. And things, things went horribly wrong. And as the year is coming to an end, you feel like you have no hope. That all hope is lost. Let me tell you, friends, in light of this, your hope is not lost. 
Because, you see, our hope that things are going to work out is not based on our faithfulness or some other person's faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness. And we can't do anything to mess up his plan because he's a great God and he's a faithful God. And so this morning, as we prepare for Christmas, here's what I hope you hear. In Jesus, we have a hope of great grace. For God's love and acceptance is dependent on what he has done, not what you have done. And God's perfect plan is dependent on his faithfulness, not your faithfulness. And friends, you believe that, you embrace that, then that's a hope that can make a weary world and a weary person rejoice. So as we end this morning, we're going to end with communion. And we're going to take communion like we do every Sunday. You can come down here in the front or the tables in the back. And as we take communion, we're going to remember what Jesus has done for us to make it possible for us to receive his love and acceptance. For when we take communion, we don't just remember that Jesus came, but that he came willingly to die as a substitute in our place. You see, and hear this, friends. The reason we can receive what we don't deserve is because in our place, Jesus received what we did deserve. He took our punishment. He paid our debt. And because Jesus received the punishment he did not deserve, we can receive in him the grace, love, and acceptance that we don't deserve. So as we take communion this morning, let's rejoice. For this is what God has done for us. And because of what God has done, we know we can have great hope. Hope that we don't have to earn God's love and acceptance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, would you, would you make this come home to us, this incredible hope-filled news that you do not treat us as we deserve and that your love and acceptance is not based on what we do but what you have done and that because Jesus you died in our place receiving what you didn't deserve we get to receive what we don't deserve your love and acceptance promised you're with us as we remember Jesus body and broken for us and will you fill us with this hope? And Lord, will you move us to rejoice? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.